Hey guys, uh, we are really, really excited about this interview. We got to interview Brad Jerzak. Yeah, the Brad Jerzak. <laughs> the Brad Jerzak. Yeah, it was and, pretty good. And uh, it was our first interview. And he's amazing. He is amazing. And uh, he, we, we went after a, a couple of things, particularly he, he took us through how, how to read the Bible. Yeah, we talked about the essence of God being the love of God and how, how do we talk about other things that may be attributes of God. And, and, and so it was a really really good interview we really enjoyed it a yeah, lot what i love about brad brad is maybe one of the smartest people on the planet but also has such a pastor's heart so he's um, gentle uh, even when introducing ideas that may seem way outside of, of what you would typically have believed or understood he's gentle but um, incredibly gifted at communicating it's all about love all of brad's information is available in and what we talked about in the podcast. So we would highly recommend that you guys check his stuff out. He's got a website. He's on social media. He's got books. So uh, And he highlights that at the end of this podcast and where to find them. So uh, and it's also going to be available on our website, yep. familystory.org. And we were so excited about the interview that we didn't even ask him about tacos. Yes, but he said he'd come back. So <laughs> that that's on us, but we will definitely ask him about his favorite tacos <laughs> next time. Hey, we want you guys to listen and enjoy. This is going to really bless you. Thanks so much. Well, we are here with Brad Jerzak, and uh, we're really, really, really honored, Brad, that you're here with us. I've been really formed and um, really educated on a lot of stuff by you. So thanks so much for joining My us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. And I appreciate the welcome. Yeah. Thomas has been uh, sharing. Uh, he sends me some new article by you every every other day. <laughs> uh, but I've heard of your name for, for, for several years, but in the last six months, particularly because of some of the, um, the writing that I've been doing and some of the pushback I've been getting in particular particular topics. I've been just so thankful for your writing, man. I'm, I'm so grateful you're here. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not composing any of this. I'm more of a, a good researcher. So um, hopefully, hopefully I'm reflecting the, the ancient church tradition and how the people who gathered the Bible read the Bible and what this means in terms of our foundational theology. So I'm happy to riff off that a little bit today. Absolutely. About 10 years ago, um, I got, I felt I don't know if you've ever heard of Bill Johnson, but he made this statement, Jesus is perfect theology. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and that gave me the freedom uh, to begin to, to chase down uh, what God is like through Jesus and ultimately led me to spending two years. I didn't tell anybody, but I only read the Gospels for two years uh, because I, I felt like I was looking at one of those digital paintings where, where, where have you ever seen that digital art with a 3d image in it? Yes. I know what you mean. Yeah. I felt like all of a sudden I was, there was revelation. Like it was always there, but I was seeing Jesus in a way I'd never seen him. And so I didn't tell anybody, but my wife and my, uh, and my dad, cause I, I went to Bible college and you were supposed to read the whole Bible. But, but what I began to discover was once I began to, to get my, my hermeneutic or if you will, my, my God lens through Christ, I began to read everything differently. And I didn't have the terminology, and I didn't have the permissions, and I didn't have the ancient or the early church understanding. So it's been so amazing in the last six months as I've as I've really begun to read some of what you've your work. I'd love it if you could take us to maybe your journey into discovering uh, that maybe Jesus. I don't know how you would say it, but I've been saying that uh, the word is authoritative, but Jesus is the authority. And uh, I'd love to hear your story, and then if you could take us back to maybe how the early church 
uh, reads the Bible. Sure. Um, so my story begins in the world of the Baptists who really taught me to love the scriptures and also taught me that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the scriptures for us. And oddly, I had a very powerful sense of that when as an eight-year-old, I was baptized and I noticed right away something had changed. So even as a conservative Baptist, I had this awareness that, that the, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our hearts to perceive the meaning of the text in a way that the, the rational mind cannot on its own. Um, sadly, we also inherited a strong modernist bent that thought that this meant reading everything literally and the entire text as, as um, of equal authority, as if reading numbers, uh, gene, you know, let's say genealogies or lists of how many people were in the tribes uh, was as important and true as the red letters in the Gospels. Um, it also yeah. meant that for whatever reason, we sort of almost treated Paul's words about Jesus as more important than Jesus' words themselves. This shifted for me when I joined the Mennonites, and particularly my mentor there was uh, Reverend Peter Bartell, and he showed me how really uh, the Anabaptist tradition or the Mennonite tradition uh, functions to take the words of Christ most seriously. And, and instead of a flat text, if you can imagine your Bible laid out flat, instead of reading it like that, or instead of it reading it on an incline where Paul and John and James and so on um, are, are a, a greater revelation than Jesus, instead you bend your Bible upwards in the in where the Gospels are. That's the pinnacle or peak of revelation because Christ, because Christ alone is perfect theology, and um, mm -hmm. that that Abraham and Moses and David and um, you know, Paul and Peter and James, they all yeah. bow to the word of God when he came yeah. in the flesh. So I've become increasingly uh, uncomfortable calling the Bible the word of God. It, it never even claims to be that. The Bible claims that Jesus is the word of God. And then secondary to that, the words of God himself, especially covenant promises and the gospel, are the word of God recorded in the scriptures. So I think about now, uh, Jesus, Jesus Christ is the word of God. He is what God has to say about himself. And then the scriptures yeah. are, um, are the human, let's say, let's call it the human words of God <laughs> um, that, that point to him, that testify of him. Um, then what I discovered uh, so, so I, well, what I did in those years, I, I was like you, I just began to saturate myself in the gospels themselves. And, and because this is in a sense, our, our spiritual Torah. And so that his words and his teachings, his, his life and his deeds, that these would begin to ooze from us. And then the rest is sort of commentary. It's either prefiguring it or reflecting on it. Um, eventually I joined the Orthodox church, but in fact, I, I was being mentored for 10 years even prior to that by the abbot of the local monastery, um, Archbishop Lozar Pahalo. And what he taught me was how the early church fathers who gathered these 
these books, um, how, how mm -hmm. they read it. And so uh, with this threefold sense, a literal sense, which was quite different than our literal sense, and um, then a moral sense and a spiritual sense. And all of this, all of this was asking the question, how does this point to Jesus? And really what we're attempting is to read it the way Jesus taught it on the road to Emmaus, which is that all he showed the two disciples on the road, how all of the law or Moses and the prophets and the Psalms right. were pointing to Jesus and that they were prefiguring him on a number of levels. So I'll start, I'll pause there and just let you chime back in and see what twigged for you as I was speaking. Yeah, that is, that's excellent, Brad. I think one of the things that sticks out is how different that, uh, just your words about that are different than the, maybe the evangelical and charismatic stream teaches about the Bible. Yeah. I think in, in many ways, it is uh, what I what I've told people is I sometimes feel like it's the it's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then the Bible is literally either in as part of the Trinity or right below it, and so it's really hard to be able to have um, I think healthy conversations because as soon as you start talking about your hermeneutics, then it seems like you're attacking the whole Bible. And what I was telling, even yesterday, what I told Jason is, I think everybody has a hermeneutic. They just don't know it, <laughs> right? So it's it's about actually understanding what your hermeneutic is. Th does that make sense? Of course, yeah. Um, pretending that we don't have a, a lens is a great self-deception, right. isn't it? And yeah. uh, while the Bible clearly says is already tells me something about that lens and mm. and um it, what it seems to say is that the first reading that comes to my attention must be the deepest sense of the text. And uh, when we see how the New Testament authors handle the Old Testament, that's obviously not the case. Right. One of the, one of the things I hear a lot is there's kind of an attack or an accusation about uh, Marcionite or is that how you pronounce it? Marcionism? Yeah. The, the idea that, you know, we're essentially saying that the Old Testament doesn't matter. How, how would you go, like, when you have conversations with individuals and things are said about, you know, you, you're just not putting enough emphasis on the whole text. How, how do you go about maybe answering those? Well, they've certainly never heard me preach or teach then. Because I, <laughs> I, um, I believe that the solution is not to abandon the Old Testament testament as marcion did mm -hmm. um, nor is it to literalize it as marcion did which is why he got mm -hmm. rid of it <laughs> the right. the solution is to delve more deeply into the old testament text with the concern that jesus gives us on the road to emmaus how is this about jesus and how is this about his gospel and where it's not it's not a revelation of god it's a revelation of the human condition so you've got two revelations going in the Old Testament, and we absolutely need both of them. Refusing mm. to read texts on Old Testament violence as prefiguring the Abba Jesus revealed isn't Marcionite. Um, yeah. um, pretending that you can just read it in such a flat way, that is a kind of Marcion, uh, what, what Marcion was 
troubled by and led him to abandon mm -hmm. the Old Testament. So that now I see two kinds of fun functional Marcionites in the, in the church today. One are those who actually are so offended by the violence and so on and what's being taught there that they they won't even let their kids have access to the Old Testament. Okay, that's like Marcion. Right. That's not what I do. But also there's another mm -hmm. kind where it's you're in such denial of the problem that you just skip over those texts. And that's also a functional way of being a Marcionite. My, my thing is this. Um, when we go to the Old Testament, we ask, how is this about Jesus or how is this about us? Is this a prefigurement of, of the gospel of Jesus or is it a projection of things we still do to the text, which is, you know, impose our own desire for violence onto God? Well, I'm not going to get rid of those texts be precisely because we still do that all the time and it's meant to be held up as a mirror. Um, to expose the ways that we've misrepresented God in very unchristlike ways. Um, so aside from my books, there's, you know, Archbishop Lazar has written a book called The Mirror of Scripture. And then the subtitle is The Old Testament is About Us. Uh. Or maybe it's The Old Testament is About You. And, and so let's say if you have a genocide text, is that, is that a picture of the God Jesus revealed? Or is that a picture of the God Samuel imagined. In either case, it's a very, very important that we pay close attention. So to call me a Marcionite would be, frankly, it's just slander and <laughs> um, a, a sign of a very, very simplistic uh, understanding of church history for that matter. They've obviously not read Marcion or, right. or his opponents. So... Uh, if I could just add a scripture, it's good. Well, let's, we should be throwing in scriptures here for, you know, Absolutely, that, right? yeah. here's one that um, I grew up memorizing. I grew up memorizing Hebrews 4, verse 12, but I didn't know, notice verse 13. So Hebrews 4, verse 12 is about the word of God. And I always thought that was about the scriptures. So get a load of this. The word of the, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now here's the next phrase. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Hmm. <laughs> so who's the word of God? It's a hymn. Wow. And, um, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do and seeing then that we have a great high priest that's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. So here's an example already where what we had assumed was referring to the Bible as the word of God is actually referring to our great high priest who speaks through it and is, is revealed in it. So again, how would, how would we know this great high priest without the scriptures? Well, we, we would probably have direct relationship with him. But the scriptures for me are, are my quality control that I'm not just making up my own Jesus. Wow, that's really, really good. Can you, do you mind maybe talking a little bit about how we ended up maybe reading the text the way that evangelicals read it today? Um, or maybe charismatics treated today in that like was that as a was that a result of the protestant reformation that that happened more in the 18th or 19th century with what was going on in germany with historical criticism i i would just love maybe your thoughts on how 
how how we went from maybe the orthodox or early church way of seeing the text to where we've landed at today yeah that that's in fact kind of a difficult question because um so so on the big scale i would say well yeah um enlightenment modernism approached the texts at least the rationalist wing of mm -hmm. the of enlightenment because there's also a romantic wing that's more poetic mm. but the rationalist wing um it seems to me was was burst in the reformation but let's just let's just start with this idea that in the uh, rationalism um, called for a particular kind of reading of the text that that demanded we show up in in their literalist courtroom and instead of resisting that we just entered the courtroom and tried to beat them on their own terms and it was a disaster um, they didn't have it seemed like they didn't have time for uh, uh, even they despised allegory especially if they couldn't if they couldn't see that as the initial intent of a text but when I read preachers, even reformed preachers, you know, some of them were very good at, at seeing how the Old Testament prefigured Christ, you mm. know, and and so it it feels like it's been a it's been a slide towards this a much a much shallower reading, and I can't quite put my finger on all the landmarks for that. Mm. Um, one of one of the things I've been doing lately, because I'm a reader in the Orthodox Church and we chant the scriptures, I've been noticed, I've been purposely chanting um, any texts that look like they're written as poetry, which is most of, well, it's the Psalms, but also most of the prophets, for example. Mm -hmm. um, if you look in your Bible, you can see, you can see the layout indicates poetry. Like let's, so Isaiah's visions, for example, um, when I when I chant those, what happens is it reminds me that it's poetry, and that it reminds me that no trees aren't literally clapping their hands. No, <laughs> we're not literally dashing babies' heads on sure. the stones, yeah. and certainly no, Jesus isn't a lamb with seven horns. Mm. In fact, he's like the God Man. So clearly, we have genres that that are not to be uh, read in such a wooden way. Yeah, that's good. I um phrase that we have um, in our house. Um, I, first of all, Thomas is going to ask you all these brilliant theological questions <laughs> that are way over my, I, I'm, uh, if it isn't, if I can't explain it to the, in the context of family to my 13 year old, it's probably over my head. Uh, but we have this phrase in our house um, that we've used for so long. I don't know, but he's good. Yeah. And, um, and it's the yep. phrase that it's my position on everything. God is love. His love is always good. He looks like Jesus and we exist yep. in brochure. That's so, for me, uh, language wise, I'm fascinated by what love looks like in the context of family, what love looks like in the context of friendship. And I think the goodness of God or the kindness of God, that actually changes the way we think. And I've heard yep. you tell stories about discovering, um, God in someone, even before they've said a prayer, yeah. even before they've said what we were taught was the right prayer or the right form of prayer. And, and I, I'd love to hear some stories about where you've seen the goodness of God change the way you think um, and change uh, and then and how you've got and change people's lives. If you've got something that's coming to mind while I'm talking. Yeah, sure. 
Um, I actually heard two questions there. One is like how to how to present this to a thirteen year old <laughs> or a nine year old yeah. or a five year old. Yeah. So and I work hard at yeah. that. So I'm going to pretend that you're going to play this part for your thirteen year old later. <laughs> and and um and and I'll just say, well, if you can think down to the level level of a nine year old, here's something really important to know that's super helpful when you read the Bible. A, co a couple points. One is. John 10, verse 10, Jesus is talking and Jesus is God. God the Son is God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are identical in character. There is nothing Jesus ever did or said that he didn't see or hear from his Father. And there's nothing that God the Father uh, would ever do that was unchristlike in any way. So, John 10, 10 says this, it's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. But I have come, God has come in the flesh, uh, that you'd have life and that more abundantly. A shorter way of saying that would be, um, it's the thief who's the death dealer, and it's God who's the life giver. Now, if I take that as sort of a, a test, and I read the Old Testament, what Jesus is saying is that when you see the death dealer, it's not God. And when you see the life giver, it is God. And then the question is, why, why do some texts present God as the death dealer? Hmm. And here's the answer that we get from Peter Enns, who you must have on your show. He's like just an amazing Bible scholar. Hmm. And, and he said this, because God let his children tell the story. Wow. So if you, if let's say you're this immature barbarian, like David, think of David as like Conan the barbarian. <laughs> and he's come into a relationship with God and had these incredible um, visitations where he finds out God is love and that he finds out God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserves, but he, he heals our, our infirmities and he forgives our sins and he redeems our lives, all of that stuff. But at the same time, he's still kind of this warrior king, right? Mm -hmm. He's a tribal warrior. Right. God's on my side right. and, and God told me to go kill these people. Right. And I, so I did go kill these, all of that. Um, um, why does it say that? It's because that's how David saw God. Mm -hmm. And he had a partial vision of God, a partial revelation, but also he said things that, that seemed to be like, like really cruel and violent in a way that looks nothing like Jesus. Right. So then, so we read this and we go, well, here's what we know. John 10, 10, the thief is the death dealer. God is the life giver. When it says God is the death dealer, that's because we got to tell the story. And we need to know that because we keep telling that story. Right. right. <laughs> we keep saying God's on our side and wants us to kill right. people in his name. And it's just not what Jesus said at all. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's the first part. That's how, that's how um, I would, I, I've taught children under 10, how to, how to discern the scriptures. So John 10, 10. And we told the story. Uh, second question was, um, how this, that, how I've seen in real life, um, this idea of, of finding Christ in people who, yeah. who aren't yet converted to Christianity. How is that possible? Um, 
Well, a good a good place to start with that is John one, where it says that that the light came into the world and it shined it shone on everyone, or the true light shone on everyone coming into the world. Either way, either way you translate that, it means really the same thing. That who is the light of the world? Christ is. Can you turn to that light, which looks like love, before you know his name? Of course you can. And so someone, I'll give an example from uh, history before I do a, a personal one. But so John Wesley came to North America as a missionary. He meets this American Indians or Canadian, Canadian First Nations people, and he discovers that they know God, the creator. And there's only one creator. And they've turned to that creator and they pray to that creator. And while their understanding um, uh, did not yet include the idea that the creator had a son who became flesh, like Cornelius in Acts 10, they were truly God-fearers, who, many of them who lived righteously. Wow. And, they were, and, and, and Peter says, God, acceptable to God. And so he was already seeing evidence of real relationship and, in that they, they had turned to the light as best they could, responded to the light in obedience. Mm -hmm. and, and now his role was to, to say, yes, and by the way, the light who is the word who made all things also became human. And then they would tell the story of Jesus and the people would respond. They're like, oh, this is great news because it means more than we knew. It means that he has suffered what we suffered. He's forgiven everything that we've do ever done and he's conquered death. So we don't have to be afraid anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's worth telling them about Jesus, right? right? <laughs> but it's not to say they had never encountered Christ, the light of the world. Yeah. Um, so I see this, I see this all the time now. Oh my goodness. In my book called, my book is called In, and the um, subtitle is Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb. And I have a lot of stories like this, but I'll, I'll tell you quickly about Stanley. Stanley came to my friend Esther, who was working in social services. He did not know God, and his mantra was that... Um, that I am a lone wolf and a black sheep and there's no place for me in this world. And he had attempted suicide. He, he slit his own throat. Mm. And then they had sewn him up at the hospital and sent him out. Um, guy is like really on the margins. And that's why he showed up at social services. But, but Esther knew him because he was a regular who would come in. And uh, she she came to work and heard him in the basement wailing. So she went and sat with him for like 45 minutes. And uh, when he had got all the sobbing out and she's like, Stanley, what happened? He said, I'm a lone wolf and a black sheep. There's no place for me in this world. That's why he tried to kill himself. So she said she wasn't allowed to use the name Jesus in that context of that office, but she knows Christ is the light of the world. So she can call him that. Mm. She said, Stanley, can you see the light anywhere in this room? And he said, no can you see the light anywhere in your heart? And she expected he'd say yes, but he said no. So she took a risk and she said, can you see the light in my eyes? And he said, yes. Mm. And she said, Stanley, what is the light saying to you? And he said, the light is saying that I have a, I'm, I'm a good man with a kind heart and I'm worthy of love and belonging. Mm. And she says, Stanley, that's the truth. That's the light speaking to you. Let's write it down. 
So he tries to write it down, but he writes down, I'm a lone wolf and I'm a black sheep and there's no place for me in this world. And she says, Stanley, that's the darkness. The darkness wanted to take you out. Remember what the light just said, write that down. Mm -hmm. So they burned up the paper with sort of this curse on it. And then they wrote down what he had heard the light say from her eyes, which is I'm a good man uh, with a kind heart, worthy of love and belonging. And over the course of uh, the coming weeks, the light overcame the darkness, which is also John one. And the the darkness was fading away and the true light was already shining. That's from first John. And yet he still hadn't heard the name Jesus. He hadn't repented as we've often think of it, but wait a minute, he had turned to the light and he had surrendered to the loving care of that light. And uh, so we believe he knows he knows God, not only God in this vague general way, but he knows the light in the world. Uh, of the, he knows the light of the world. He knows the word and has heard the word who speaks to the world. But um, the question is, when when will he also learn that Jesus has come in the flesh? You know that this word and this light has come. Well, when God makes a way, yeah. when He opens the door for yeah. that, and we'll be waiting. But in the meantime, let's pretend, uh, you know, so we knew some wonderful Christian people who bought, who bought Stanley a bicycle. Let's say he gets hit, hit, hit by a car on his bike. As evangelicals, our first question was, where is he? Well, well where is he yeah. going? Did he yeah. say the prayer? Yeah. Was he baptized? Right. Is he in heaven or yeah. hell? It, it actually doesn't work that way. <laughs> the, we have a light that, that spoke to him and that has already healed him. And he's following that light as best he knows at this moment. And and if his life were cut short now, he would meet that light on the other side and recognize him immediately in ways that I'm afraid many Christians wouldn't. That's so um, good. So uh, that's my Stanley story. Wow. You know, that sounds offensively good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Almost like the gospel. <laughs> Uh, but it is a, it is problematic in in that you've got this parable of two sons in the in the scriptures where Jesus says one son says I'm going to go out to the fields and and work and then he doesn't and the other son says I'm not going to go out but he does and then Jesus is like which which one was obedient mm-hmm. and so here's my point is that I I know of people who don't acknowledge um, Jesus is is the Christ yet. And yet they follow him yeah. according to, you know, yeah. uh, in some deliberately so yeah. as they read the Sermon on the Mount yeah. and others who identify with his name and say, Lord, Lord. Right. But do not the things that they do. It's like unchristlike Christians and Christ-like non-Christians. Well, that just bends my mind. <laughs> but who's oriented towards I him? Uh, I think that's the issue. And your love is Hey guys, I'm interrupting this podcast for just a minute so I can invite you to partner with us by giving to A Family Story. A Family Story is a 501, a nonprofit, and it's our ministry. And it's what allows for me to produce this podcast and other regular content. We've been living this faith journey for a long time, but 2014 was when we officially stepped away from the traditional pastoring approach to full-time ministry. It's been fun. This journey has been wild. And this last year was no less faith-inducing with COVID affecting travel and speaking. And it's been good, because hey, 
we started a podcast. Our passion is to create content catalytic for an encounter with the always good, transforming, reconciling love of our Heavenly Father. And so our heart through this ministry has always been that through speaking, writing, film, and music, we're relentlessly sharing the goodness of our Father, the good news. Your giving goes directly to support this podcast, as well as written content, discipleship content, teaching small group messages, articles that we release weekly, and also the book I'm writing. I'm excited about what I'm chasing down right now. We appreciate all the support, whether it's sharing, writing a review, following us, signing up for our email list, or financially. We just love being on the journey with you. If you want to give to A Family Story, you can go to afamilystory.org, afamilystory.org, and click on the Give button. All right, thanks, guys. Let's get back to the podcast. Hey, Brad. Yeah. Um, just changing gears, maybe a little bit, but I have heard you say um, many times, you know, you've talked about this idea of, uh, you know, love being the very essence of who God is and yeah. how other attributes of God flow out of that, but are not in competition with that. I, I would love it if you could give us some thoughts on that, because I, in my conversations with people, I, I just find that that is sometimes really hard for people to just wrap their head around. Yeah, and the judgment of God okay. and the yeah. love of God. How do we deal with things like, you know, wrath and judgment and anger and all these things? And and like you said earlier, I, I find that it's on a spectrum. Either people completely aren't willing to, to face those texts and are, are willing to say, well, you know, God's peaceful and happy all the time. Or they have really distorted views of what that means. So, anyways, I would just yeah. love for you to talk about that. Sure. So, um, you know, we have a developing idea or revelation of who God is in the in the Bible. By the time you get to the Gospel of John and First John, you're now into the most um, most profound revelation mm -hmm. in the sense that John has even had another full generation to interact with the living Christ in prayer mm -hmm. after Peter and James and Paul um, and the others had were already dead. You know, they, they've gone on to be with the Lord. They've written their stuff. And now John has another at least, let's say, 30 more years where he's working this out. And we get this full-blown Johannine theology First John chapter four, God is love, yeah. uh, which is in the metaphor. There is love and light and life. It's all the same thing. It's it's this simple essence or nature. So you you don't essence means um, what is God plus nothing like without remainder. Mm. God is love without remainder. God is love plus nothing. That's what essence means. You can't have a divided essence. Mm. You know, essential oils means it's distilled down to its most basic element, the basic, the basic nature of God, the simple essence of God is love, according mm -hmm. to the Apostle John. And um, so what then what you then have is people who will notice these other attributes of God, like holiness, justice or righteousness. And they'll set them over against love and say things like God is love, but he's also righteous god is love but he's also holy god is love but he's also just as if those were in competition or mm. 
as if you could have a holiness, righteous and righteousness and justice that isn't love in the divine nature. Well, here's some bad news. The holiness, justice and righteousness that is not divine love is the Pharisees. That's what crucified the son of God. So then what do we do with these other words? These other words are all attributes of God. In other words, at what's an attribute? Things we attribute to God. And how do we attribute them to God? Through our experiences. Right. All right. So um, it's really important then to, to know that um, all of the attributes of God must be facets of that one diamond, mm. love. Yeah. Or goodness would be another word we use for that. Um, there are facets of the diamond. So you can't have holiness as over against love it has to be holy love or it's not holy at all mm. it has to be righteous love or it's not righteous at all it has to be just love or it's not just at all and even in hebrews chapter 12 when it talks about the discipline of the lord it's like you are not allowed to think about the discipline of the lord apart from that of a loving father mm. whose intent is to restore you Okay, so then where does something like anger or wrath come in? And let's be very clear what what wrath means. Wrath is a human, it's one of the seven deadly sins actually in Catholicism. Wrath means violent anger. And by violent, I mean does harm. That's the definition of violence. So you can have acts or words um, that that are very forceful, but, but it's when they do harm to the other. Yeah that they become violent. So you've got wrath then is this sin of, of, of violent anger that does harm. Um, to, then to attribute that directly and literally to God, um, the early church fathers said, you create an idol. Mm. And in fact, John Cassian, the great fourth century uh, desert father said, you create a monstrous blasphemy if you attribute wrath or anger to God in any literal way. Mm. Okay, well then, why does the Bible sometimes use that word? It's because we had an experience of disobeying God where we suffered harm mm. <laughs> and then we blame it on right. God, right? So it's like, it's like my mom saying, Bradley, don't touch the hot stove, but then I, t or it will burn you. And then I touch the hot stove. And not only do I assume that instead that my, I should run to my mom, but I assume I should go hide from her because she's angry at me now. And in fact, maybe she's the one who burnt me. Right. Like that's, it's that ludicrous right. yeah. if you literalize it. So, so the Bible will use this wrath metaphorically to talk about the consequences of disobeying our good father when he's warned us about, about the, the um, wages of sin. Mm. So the wages of sin is death. It's not the wages of, sin is that God will kill you. Right. Said another way, it's not that God so hated the world that he killed his only son. It's that he loved the yeah. world that he gave his only son. We killed him and then he raised him up. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but in turning away from the light, here's another way to talk about wrath. In turning away from the light, we create a shadow. And all the bad things that happen in that shadow, you could metaphorically call it the wrath of God, but it's more like um, by the time you get to Romans 5 and some of the early Jewish rabbis, they're just using wrath and Satan interchangeably. Mm. So I would say we want to um, be, beware of giving, at, of literalizing human sinful attributes onto 
a divine onto divine love that's that's just pagan um and it, jesus has has been leading us out of paganism in that sense so brad if i'm hearing you correctly there would would it be fair to say then that when we talk about sin that the consequences are intrinsic to the actual behavior and not uh, a punishment or a um it's not as if god is saying you did this i'm so angry at you i'm going to pour out my wrath on you but the but that the consequence is intrinsic to the kind of behavior that you're engaging in yes that's exactly right and it's a little worse than that um that the the consequences of sin not are not only a because it's sin it's not just even so sure. the consequences of my sin might bring great harm to somebody else right right but it's it's not a, like god says oh you sin therefore i'll punish you um in fact if that were the case he's really bad at it <laughs> like i have a lot of people on my list of, of, that he should have punished sure. and he didn't <laughs> and and david already notices this yeah. right he's like why do the wicked prosper like how come they get away with it if god is so wrathful he should be he's incompetent mm. so come on wrath them and and so david prays this sure. and, it, and it's like god responds to david it's like i don't take delight in, in the punishment of the wicked or the death of the death of the sinner is wicked he says <laughs> so um so god's solution to sin is grace yeah. so the whole verse is in Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So wages versus gift. Sin sin requires payment. Grace doesn't. Grace offers pardon. And so we almost see sin and God as these two agents at work. Uh, one is one is retributive and and transactional, yeah. and the other is is pure love. Mm -hmm. So how awful is it then when we project our ideas of sin onto God that as if he's the one who's retributive and transactional? That's just absolutely not what we see, for example, in the parable of the prodigal son. When the son leaves, God doesn't punish him. God doesn't put him in the pig pen. God doesn't inflict the, the, um, uh, the famine on him. Uh, rather, he's experiencing his the alienation of turning from the father's love and yet the father never ceases to see him as a son and in fact runs out to meet him and in the case of the sheep actually climbs down into the ditch mm. to untangle him. that's so good I, it's uh it's it's almost as though the, the 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 son was forgiven before he ever left well this is the claim of romans 5 you know that um while we were still ignorant christ died for us while we were still sinners he forgave mm. us while we were still enemies he reconciled us it's all done yeah. you know so um this idea that sin separates you from god is not paying attention to how god worked with people from day one in the garden he comes to look for them he pursues yeah. them yeah. he follows them he saves them and um and so while there's no separation, we certainly do feel alienation when we act as if we've been kicked out of the family, but we've never been kicked out of the family. So good. So it's almost it's it's almost you could call it good news, man. Like it's practically gospel. <laughs> it feels so good. They just, man. I I know you. We've got a few minutes left. As you were talking, I was I would ask you this. Um, 
I use this scripture often where the eye is healthy, the body's full of light. Uh, the eye is unhealthy, the body's full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I've kind of used that in the similar way that you just described, but I'd be curious what your perspective is regarding uh, his goodness or his nature will determine actually your interaction with him. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you see this all the way back in Genesis. When Adam and Eve stumble, they immediately feel shame. And out of their shame, they construct a false image of God yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that's really rooted in shame. So suddenly they think that they need to hide from a God from whom they've never needed to hide. Right. Um, where did they come up with this idea? Right. Well, it was, it was generated out of, out of shame. And uh, again, back to John Cassian and some of his contemporaries, they they talked about how um, if you think God is literally angry, that's actually a reflection of your of, of the fear in your own heart. Mm -hmm. And so, your your fear generates this this um, the God who who rages at you and is, becomes violent with you. And so, yeah, it's it's the darkness in your own eye, yeah. right, yeah. that makes God seem shadowy and as if he's worse than the devil in fact yeah. which you see a lot yeah that's so good man I, I what i so appreciate about about you is that um that you release such grace when you speak i always sense that there's a invitation to agree or disagree but that you're after the goodness of god and i'm so thankful for you man i appreciate what you're writing what are you what are you passionate about right now what is on your heart right now burning if you you were like, man, I got two minutes. This is what, what, what I'm excited about right now. Um, I've covered a lot of it, but one thing, I am writing a book called A More Christ-like Word now, and it's about how the scriptures mm -hmm. prefigure Jesus and his gospel. Wow. And um, I, um, in the meantime, I'm, I'm just very excited about a sermon I found from the second century that people can look up online, and it will show them how to read the Old Testament the way oh, wow. wrote, the road to Emmaus did. So... The man's name is Melito, M-I-L-E-T-O, of Sardis, which was mm -hmm. one of the seven churches in Revelation. And he's like maybe two generations out from John the Apostle. And he wrote a sermon called On Pascha, P-A-S-C-H-A. Pascha means Passover or suffering, which is what we call our Good Friday to Easter weekend in the Orthodox Church. So Melito of Sardis writes this sermon for for Pascha, and and um, if people Google it, and you could probably link it to to this, yeah. Um, yeah, um, there's a PDF online, and you can just see how how he does it. So you know, I'll give you one example. Uh, if you wish to see the mystery of the Lord, look at Abel, who is likewise slain. Look at Isaac, who's likewise tied up. Look at Joseph, who's likewise traded. Look at Moses, who's likewise exposed. Look at David, who's likewise hunted down. At the prophets, who likewise suffer for the sake of Christ. And look at the sheep slaughtered in the land of Egypt, which saved Israel through its blood while Egypt was struck down. The mystery mm. of the Lord is proclaimed through the prophetic voice. And he goes on to talk about Moses and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah and so on. And all of this, he's, he's, he just actually models for you how to read all the sufferings of God's people is prefiguring the ultimate suffering of Christ. All the victories of God's people is prefiguring the ultimate victory of Christ. And even all the injustices of God's people is prefiguring the injustice of the Sanhedrin in condemning Christ. And you suddenly you realize, oh, this is easy. He's everywhere. Wow. <laughs> and 
that's not being Marcionite. That's reading the Bible as gospel <laughs> so that you realize the whole Bible is the New Testament when read through Christ. Mm. And this is 2 Corinthians 3. It now becomes a ministry of reconciliation because the veil is taken away and we look for the Lord throughout every uh, throughout the text. So good. Wow. So, so good. So there you go. Um, I commend that to you until my book comes out. That will give you about a year. <laughs> okay. Brad, where can, uh, as we wrap up here, where can people find you and, and your work? I know you've written... Uh, you were talking about inclusion and you've also written a more Christ-like God, a more Christ-like way. Where can people find your stuff? Um, they can find it uh, at bradjersak.com. Uh, they can find me on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And they can find my books on Amazon. Although there you need to look for at both Brad Jersak and Bradley Jersak. It okay. seems to separate the books, but it's the same person. Okay. We'll have that up on the site too. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank, thank you so, you so much. much for being a part of this and ho hopefully we can do this in the future sometime. I'd be happy to come back. Thanks. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode. We hope it encouraged. Uh, we had a lot of fun making it. If you guys want to subscribe to this podcast, please do. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all of them. Anywhere you might listen and, to podcasts. And leave a review. Leave a review. Yeah, that'd be Especially great. Especially if it's a good review. We're just getting started, right? We don't want bad reviews. No. Also, if you want to follow us on uh, social media, um, you can go uh, to, uh, I know this man has a Twitter account. Uh, we both do. 160 followers. Nice. It's very active. It's about to skyrocket. Um, and if you want to find us uh, online, we're at afamilystory.org, afamilystory.org. Also, you can reach me there if you want to get a hold of us for any reason at uh, jason at afamilystory.org. We're excited that you guys are on this journey with us, and we look forward to releasing more content. Yeah, thanks. See you.